Welcome to the JFI's Weekly Choosing Up podcast with author and therapist, Ilana Kendall, and me, your host, Ellie Bass. Each week, we explore how to get into a Choosing Up headspace using insights from my book of the same name, as well as Jewish wisdom, psychology, and more. Join us now for this week's episode. Are you ready to choose up? Okay, so I think we are just going to jump right in today. I'm going to just pass the torch over to the wonderful and amazing and illustrious Alana Kendall. Alana. Good morning. <laughs> nice to see you. Nice we, to see everybody. What are we doing today? What are we talking about? What are we about? doing today? Well, what we're doing today is really picking up from last week. And we ended off with a really important question that came up, which was, if we are making changes right now, if our growth is feeling different, is propelling us in different ways, if we are being squeezed or directed, how are we going to take what's happening now and carry that over into the sort of post-corona reality? Now, I think that the, the first piece that we want to acknowledge is that we're going to move from this stage to the next stage, but we are not going back. This is this, the only way is forward. And that means that we are going to continue to contend with change, with perhaps unexpected circumstances. And all the more so, I think that question becomes so relevant to us, which is how do I take the ways that I am growing and make sure that they endure? I want to talk about this from a couple of perspectives. I think the opening really, as we know, with choosing up, choosing up is this idea that we look at our day-to-day experiences through the lens of looking for growth, for meaning, and God. And so the answer really came to me in the parking lot of my building. I feel like lately my writing, the emails I'm sending, and my thinking could be called like the, the uh, I live on Shalmar, the Shalmar Chronicles. <laughs> it is really like what I want to share with you, you know, is something that happened on my balcony, something that happened in, in the parking garage. So I was in the parking garage and I, I shared this this story this morning, which was that I pulled into my parking spot, I'm getting my stuff out of the car, I'm getting my baby out and getting the stroller going, and I saw someone else pull up in their car. So the quandary, as you may be experiencing, if you're walking down the street, if you're in a store, is you know how do we keep this minimum six feet distance from each other? So there's this sort of unspoken dance that begins, right? So like I'm getting my stuff out of my car, and this woman who's getting out of her car is is you know hanging back near her car, and there's this unspoken understanding between us that we are going to, if you kind of imagine when when you have two magnets that that are repelling each other, we're going to keep this distance. And I go to enter my building, and I'm pulling my stroller, and I'm kind of jiggling the key, and Normally this works easily, of course, with someone standing there, the key is jamming and she's standing there and I'm pulling the stroller and right, you get, get the scene. And I called her, I say, you know, thank you for hanging back. And she says to me, you know, I, I wish I could help you. And bear in mind, this is through her mask that she is offering this help. And I say, oh, no, no, it's okay. I've got a system. And I get myself in and she hangs back and I, I get into the elevator on my own. And as I'm standing there, her words are kind of just like floating around me. And I'm hearing this, I wish I could. And it meant so much to me not because I couldn't manage, but because there was this bid for connection. There was this reaching forward and outward. 
but also because it captured something that I certainly wrestle with and I, I believe is, is really at the core of human struggle and journey, which is what is it to wish? She wished she could and how important that wish itself is. In Hebrew, we talk about not wishing so much as desire. In Hebrew, we call it ratzon. And at the core of our spiritual journey is ratzon, is getting clear about not just where we are, but really where we want to go. And this is, this is an important question for us in an ongoing way. And we don't want to live our lives asleep at the wheel. We don't want to live a reactive life. So this is actually one thing I often talk about with clients is the difference between being reactive and responsive. So a large focus in my practice is around mindfulness. And when, when we do mindfulness exercises and practices, what we're doing is bringing awareness to the present moment. And something that we, we explore is what is your experience and what do you want to do with that? So, you know, I might have a client, let's say, who has um, sciatica. And so, so what do we do with that uncomfortable experience? Well, maybe we choose to shift our, our body posture. But there's a very different experience, and it is really a different trajectory when we are in automatic mode, I'm in pain, and therefore I'm shifting about, or if I'm in emotional or spiritual pain, I'm flailing about as opposed to, wow, there is intense discomfort here. I'm noticing it, I'm observing it, and then I'm making an active choice to respond to it. And so whereas reactivity is really this automatic mode where there's not too much bechira, there's not too much choice going on, being responsive is moving into that place where I am really becoming the actor in my life. I am the one who is realizing what I'm experiencing and then making thoughtful, directed choices in connection to that experience. So where does Ratzon come in? Ratzon comes in, which is, where do I want to go? And really pointing ourselves in that direction. And this is, as we were saying, so important now, because in a sense, we're at ground zero. What I mean is, you know, we've talked about this idea that the whole world has been put on restart. And, and that might mean restart in life if we are experiencing tremendous loss and tragedy, as so many are with, with losses of loved ones, losses of jobs, stability, or if we're just at restart in terms of needing to really just go inside and reconnect to ourselves and to our families. And therefore, Ratzon becomes really important because when we are at that ground zero, when we are at that restart, you know, the metaphor that we might use, and I love a good metaphor. I, I was actually listening to a lecture um, with an author, and she was saying how authors love metaphors, and that her editor came to her and said, okay, this is great, just take out 20 metaphors. So I can tell you when I was having choosing up edited, I had the very same experience. I, I worked with Aharona again, so big shout out for 3SK Cafe. I think they're doing um, takeout right now. Yes, you can go on their website. So Aharona looked through my pieces and said, okay, this is great, like five metaphors, choose one, stick with it. Okay, so 
five metaphors at the moment, okay? So we have Ratzon, we have this woman saying she wishes and that that is so powerful. Why is that powerful? We are at ground zero. It's like a rocket launch. And I'm not a physicist, but I think we can, I can know enough, which is that the angle at which that rocket is pointed at takeoff is going to have huge effect when it lands. And so a tiny tweak down here is going to have exponential effect as we keep going and as we shift from this high intensity experience to perhaps a more diffused reality where we are at least maybe partially back into the hustle bustle, less connected to these spiritually awakened times. So Ratzong desire becomes really that, that vehicle that can carry whatever is happening now forward. And, and I think gives us some hope of sustainability and that desire, that wish, you know, as I was standing there in the elevator and I'm thinking about this woman saying to me, I, I wish I could help you. And I thought, right, a wish, a desire. And what an incredible gift that is. We say every day, we're, we're meant to say three times a day the, in the ashray where we, we recite the Tehillim, we say that God is that God opens our hands and, and we often translate it as fulfills our desires. But if we look at the literal translation, it's literally that he gives each living being a ratzon. And so that desire is really a gift for us. It is the thing that drives us forward. And therefore part of our work and, and I think really the invitation of this time is to become more acquainted with our desire because that's what's going to help us direct ourselves going forward. And the thing about desire, the thing about Ratzon is it, it's each of ours, meaning I can't cultivate your Ratzon and you can't cultivate my Ratzon. I can inspire yours, you can inspire mine, but this is a deeply personal place inside of us and something that actually often comes up in therapy because many of us, not everyone, you know, those of you who fit are, are the outliers, um, who don't like authority, who don't like someone else telling you the answer or the way to know. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who I'm talking about either, Ellie. Yeah. Um, but, but for many people, there is a habit of looking outside for affirmation, for guidance. Uh, there's a bit of this sort of outsourcing of decision-making, and this will come up in the therapeutic relationship where, where there will be this dynamic where the therapist or where the, the client, in, in my case, is looking to me to take on that authority role and kind of just tell them how to do it. And part of the work is to tolerate the discomfort of saying, actually, this is for you to choose. This is for you to cultivate. What is your ratzon? What is your deep desire? What is that, that vehicle, that chariot that's going to carry you across your life and in your spiritual work? And you know, if, if you've ever seen a two-year-old who's not getting their way, we know how powerful ratzon is. And sometimes we get sort of socialized out of it. We have experiences that dampen that belief in ourselves that yes, if I 
really set my eye on something, there's nothing stopping me. But that actually is what we're programmed for. And Chazal teaches tell us that based on a teaching in the Zohar, there is a oft quoted uh, phrase, nothing stands in the way of desire. And when we're talking about this, we are talking about spiritual work. So I want to be clear, you know, it's not that nothing stands in the way of you getting your dream car. Lots of things may stand in the way of that. But Nothing gets in the way of us creating a life and an existence that is what we hope for from the inside out. And that's really, as we always talk about, where our locus of control is. It's who do I want to be from the inside out? So, I think it's also so important what you're saying, because if you don't clarify your ratzan, like what your desire is, you'll often fill it with things that actually aren't addressing the issue. Like, you know, we see this with say like emotional eating, like I want comfort, so I'm going to eat food, but then you never actually get the comfort. You're just trying to fill it with other stuff. So I love what you're saying about clarifying, like what actually is the thing I want? What is my desire? And by clarifying that you can actually go then make a plan to get what you actually need, not just like finding things to like fill that empty space in some way. Yeah, so just to be clear, chocolate is definitely a food group during COVID. Okay, just I, don't, I, I understand that. <laughs> uh, and, and so the work of clarification is not linear. I, I think about this time that I had three connecting flights to get to Victoria. And I think I flew Toronto to Calgary, Calgary to Kelowna, Kelowna to Victoria. So Anyone who's been to the Calgary airport, beautiful, large airport. My stopover was like 12 and a half minutes running from one plane to the next. I get to Kelowna. Kelowna airport is about the size of my living room. And I get there and there's a five hour delay, right? So I think like, which airport would I have rather been stuck in? And it was, it, it happened to be the afternoon and I went to Davin Mincha. And at the time I had a phone out the iPhone has changed how you calibrate your compass. So anyone with an iPhone, if you calibrated your compass, you know you turn your phone around now, but it used to be this exquisite experience of taking your phone, okay, and turning it in a figure eight, okay? And so there I was in the middle of the Kelowna airport, sort of turning my phone in a figure eight so that I could find east, so I could face towards Yerushalayim, towards Jerusalem when I was praying. And to me, this, is such a, a beautiful example of what it is to figure out our zone. It sometimes feels like going in a figure eight. And we are so conditioned to want things quickly mm. and, and to, to, to want them to happen now. I love Rebetzin Heller talks about one of the uh, stumbling blocks really in spiritual growth is a Coke machine mentality we want to put in our dollar or toonie, or I think now it's just like a credit card at a vending machine. Uh, and, and we want that, that result to come out right away. Similarly with Ratzon, we are going to need to tolerate going inwards and some of the discomfort of the process, which COVID is giving us all a crash course in. How do we tolerate some discomfort and all of us in our own struggles, you know, along a spectrum or maybe according to the day, what, what the intensity is like, but how do we tolerate it in such a way that we can really get up close to that clarity? Because once we have that clarity, once we have that goal in mind, 
then, then, then we begin the journey. We don't begin it alone. Right? So with growth always. So if you are a super type A person and you're thinking, okay, great, I can make my plan and then it's all going to be great and wonderful and neat and tidy. Um, so first of all, I can relate to you. And secondly, not going to go that way. What it does look like is having that clarity, having that route zone in such a way where we can show up to doing that work and partner with God to say, okay, this, this is where I want to go. You know, I, sometimes we say like, I want to be more patient. God, like I'm working on being more patient. And then that person messages us or walks into the room that pushes all their buttons and we go, no, no, but God, like I want to be more patient. Don't send them my way. And, and God is going, no, no, I sent them your way to build that muscle. And so too, when we get that clarity and we bring God into the work with us, that's when we're unstoppable. That's, that's what, what Chazal is telling us that nothing stands in the way of Ratzon, nothing stands in the way of desire. And, and for those of us who are particularly goal oriented or product focused there is a beautiful teaching which i think is so relevant at this time when we thought you know i knew how things were going to go or this is this is my these were my plans or even when we think to this woman in the parking garage who i don't know who she is and i wouldn't even recognize her these days because of the mask but Hazel tell us in the gemara that if we have the thoughts to do a mitzvah, if we have that intention and then we're stopped, something prevents us, we still have the merit for having wanted to do that thing, which is also a powerful teacher for us, which is that we're not overly focused. We are not held responsible for the outcome we are held responsible for where we are pointing ourselves. Where are we wishing to go? Who are we longing to become? And that we actually accrue merit through that process. And I think that really flips the, the paradigm on its head in a world that has been so outcome focused. We, we test our kids, we look at their marks, we, we ask people what they've accomplished. We're, learning or relearning what it is to be in the process itself and in the long game. Yeah, I remember a conversation that I had with one of my kids when we were um, uh, on one of our walks and we were talking about like doing mitzvah, like is this a point system or a growth system? Mm. And I think if you're relating to it as a point system, okay, then it's who can get the most points wins. But if you're relating to it as a growth system, like that each thing I choose to do that's hopefully connective in some way, it's so that in this moment, I can exercise those muscles and grow. And then it's not about, oh my gosh, I have to do as many as possible. It's like thoughtfully choosing which one for this moment will be the one that will grow me the most. Yeah, you know, that's a lovely concept to bring back to this notion of being responsive instead of reactive, and that the Torah gives us a framework of responses, that there are ways to be, that there is spiritual choreography in this world, and we can learn the dance. And different times call for different dances. Right. Different relationships call upon different aspects. Here, here we are in another metaphor. Okay. Uh, and, and that, that more we can be responsive, 
the more our self-concept also shifts. And, and this, this is an important piece for us. How do we keep up our longing? So as a people, we are professional longers. We have been longing and yearning for Mashiach. We don't give up. Right? We, we actually, we say that even though Mashiach is taking his time, we're holding on. And we affirm this on a daily basis. And I think part of the importance of the affirmation is to continually point ourselves in that direction. And this is true spiritually. This is true neurologically. We know that the thoughts that we have, the things we pay attention to over and over again, will be the direction in which we are led. You know, I was actually having a conversation with my, with my niece, my nine-year-old niece, a couple weeks ago about plasticity and how you know, if, if we think positively, we actually continue to think positively the more we train our minds that way. And she said to me, well, I, I think I'm pretty positive. I think I naturally think, think positive things. I said, yeah. I said, what do you think gets in the way? Like, when do you not? And she thought about it and she said, when I'm tired. I said, yeah. I said, you know, for me, it's when I'm hungry. And, and at this time, what a powerful thing to know that some of the basics are actually what's going to set us up to direct us towards greatness. You know, that greatness doesn't look like big speeches and loud shouting and cheering. Greatness looks like, okay, uh, you know, I, I made sure I got enough sleep so I could be a nice person to my family. And I have a friend, I think she's actually on the Zoom, who, who talks about that, right? I sleep so I can be a good person. I eat so I can be patient, so that I can be hopeful, so that I can connect to that higher desire in me. Now, I, I want to touch on another facet of Ratzon, and that is, how does the Ratzon endure? So the question that came up last week was, you know, how am I going to carry this over? So one thing is, know which direction you want to go in. Take this time to go inwards, to take your sort of spiritual phone, do that figure eight, feel silly, take time, uh, do that inward introspection, and point yourself, therefore, in that direction. But the, the second element is, how are we going to keep this up? You know? most of us can be inspired for a few minutes, an hour, a few weeks. <laughs> How do we keep this up? And so this week, as we are counting Sphira, as we are moving through the Omer from, from Pesach to, to Shavuot, we just began uh, Netzach. So, so Netzach is this energy, this Mizah, this character trait of endurance. And Netzach is the ability to have this long-term vision. So I have run a number of half marathons, and I can tell you that there are two parts that are the hardest. So basically the whole thing is the hardest, okay? But can I tell you, when you come to the mile one marker, for me, that is one of the hardest moments. Why? Because it feels like I've kind of been at this for a while, and oh my gosh, I'm only at mile one. This feels unending. And then I make it through mile two, mile three, and I sort of start to get a groove. And then I'm like, okay, I got this. 
And then somewhere around mile nine, eight or nine, I start to get tired again. And you know, the, the momentum picks up again somewhere around mile 12 and a half, because then you can, you can see the finish line. So how do we deal with this? So, so first of all, if we are looking discreetly at this time, we don't know what mile we're at. And what can happen to us is we can confuse mile one with mile 13, or mile 12 with mile two, and, and what do I mean in terms of taking this metaphor and grafting it onto our experience? We can have expectations about where we ought to be, what we ought to be experiencing, where we expected we might be, our calculation about how much energy there, there may be kind of in the bank. And so how are we going to contend with this? How are we going to take ourselves in this story that we're in, in our lives, in COVID, in the larger arc of our experience, and endure. So Ratzone is going to be part of that, that work, knowing where I want to go, setting long-term goals based on this, this desire that I have, this vision for a higher self, a different kind of reality, different kinds of relationships, a different experience. So that's going to be one part of it. But I, I think one thing that certainly helped me when I was running was feeling that I was a runner. And can I tell you, I did not start out a runner at all. And I remember the first time that I was able to complete a race thinking, oh my gosh, I, that wasn't who I thought I was. And I did it and I felt that anything was possible. Can I tell you, I actually decided I was going to run a full marathon for my 40th birthday. I'm not planning on it. It's not happening. But at the time I was so filled up with this feeling of anything is possible. I am the kind of person who could do that. When it comes to endurance, the more we can cultivate the sense of ourselves as the kind of people who can endure, the more we will endure. So if we look at studies around children and academic performance, and you have kids who don't do homework and you have kids who do do homework, one of the most powerful things that we see is not just that the children change their habits, meaning they form a behavioral groove, they have structure, they go home, they do their homework before supper, but the children who are in a condition where they always do their homework, always do their homework because they're the kind of people who always do their homework. And so the more we can build our self-concept, the more that we see ourselves as the kind of people who will and can endure, the more we will and can endure, the more we will be able to take these little micro movements, these little steps that we are taking that I always encourage us to take, small, 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 and become the kind of people who feel, ah, I can do this. So if we want to take this time to be introspecting, part of the work is also to be building ourselves and seeing, wow, like I'm the kind of person who can do this. I'm the kind of person who will do this. There is a story in the Gemara at, of, told about Rabbi Preda. And he has a student who, in order to understand a concept, needs to be taught it 
400 times. Okay, so anyone who has children at home right now and is struggling with, you know, repeating something or anyone who is working on themselves and feels like, well, I should have got that by now, okay, 400 times. And he repeats his lessons always 400 times. And there's one time that he gives over, he's giving over this lesson and he's being called to a mitzvah. And he, he says, okay, you know, I'm going to go do, fulfill this mitzvah, but first I'm going to teach my student this concept 400 times. And it's the end of the 400th time and the student doesn't get it. And Rabbi Preda says, like, why, why didn't you get it? And the student says, well, I, I couldn't pay attention because at every moment I felt like you might leave to go do this mitzvah. Now, I'm going to pause here in the middle of this, this story from the Gemara just to say what a powerful lesson to us about the anxiety that we all naturally feel when we are not having the sense that someone is fully present with us, even if it's for something very good. And we can't always be 100% there for everybody. You know, we, we are making dinner or running here or, and... Just, just to bring awareness to that. I think that, that at, at the first level of this Kamara is an important thing for us to understand the anxiety that comes up when there is an expectation of detachment and, and how that gets in the way of those frontal lobes, that higher part of ourselves being online and being available to learn. So Rav Preda hears this and he comes back and he sits with him and he goes over it 400 more times. And then his student gets it. And a heavenly voice comes and says, you know, what do you want as a reward? Do you want to live 400 more years? Or do you want that you and your generation should merit the life of the world to come? And Rav Prita says, I want the, the life of the world to come. And the Almighty says, ah, as your reward, I will give you both. What is the Gemara teaching us here? So many things, but what I want to, to emphasize for us is that the endurance game is not a short-term commitment, okay? 400 times, and yet it comes with tremendous reward. And so if we find ourselves confusing mile six with mile 12, or mile 12 with mile six, then perhaps what, what can help us is to remember that being someone who can endure comes through endurance. Being someone who can continue pointing ourselves in that direction comes through continually pointing ourselves in that direction. And when we can, as we say with our choosing up paradigm, bring meaning to the experience, we transcend some of the, the pushback that we may feel and actually can continue to stay the course. So, if you are on your 399th time, don't give up. It, it may, might just fall in at time 400. Yeah, I think that's so interesting too, because I think most of us have no idea what mile we're on right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's very little clear reference point for, you know, we kind of know how long we've been in it. We're not sure what this is going to look like long term. And and so it's hard to orient ourselves to know, hey, I'm, I'm actually doing great because, you know, we're halfway through. And so, yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about the orientation, the, the markers need to be, who am I in this? Yes. Not what's happening. And that we can kind of give ourselves milestones of, oh, like today, 
you know, I managed to have more patients or I managed to make a couple good choices or, you know, sort of change what we're basing our orientation on rather than the circumstances, but, you know, who we're, who and how we're being in the circumstances. That's, that's, that's the core of it all. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> that's awesome. I repeat it 400 times. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Uh, okay, where should we go from here? Should we just check and see if anybody has questions? I think Lori had a question on the chat, which is, can you give an example of a small step? A small step in, in spiritual growth. Is that a small step in, in this endurance? Yeah, I think she was asking it when you were speaking about this idea of having endurance, like, and you were talking about sometimes it's just the smaller moments. Yes. Allow us to move forward. So can you give a couple of examples of what, what would a small step look like in these times? Beautiful. So, so I'll say, you know, this question came up in my house. We, we were watching the, uh, the torch lighting ceremony. Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzma'ut. And my daughter and I also went on this online platform where we could get matched up with a soldier uh, who had lost his or her life for the state of Israel, for the lands of Israel, and, and pray for them. And her question was, I feel so inspired right now, how do we hold on to this? And I said, yes, this is the question. And so what, what my answer to her, my answer to myself, my answer to all of us, is that when we feel that moment of inspiration, we need to make a commitment towards a small step and what that small step can look like. So I, you know, I said to her, it shouldn't look big. Uh, a small step could be every morning, I'm going to smile for a moment at the first person I see. I asked her about some of her own, uh, davening her own praying commitments so far, because part again of the small steps we take are very individualized and so, you know, what I would suggest to one person is different than what would be appropriate for another person because small steps have to do with where you are and where you want to push your growth edge. So, you know, we said, well, maybe, maybe one prayer that you say, just crank up your kavana, your concentration, or maybe add one chapter here. Right, so, so the small steps can be interpersonal. So the smile is an example of interpersonal. They can be in, in, in interperson and God, right? So that could be that prayer. It could be, you know, maybe you don't say blessings on foods and you choose one meal a day where you are going to make a blessing. It can also be intrapersonal. So going within ourselves. So maybe making a choice once a day, once a week to set a timer and spend some time in reflection, make some notes so that you can be intentionally cultivating this ratso and this desire. And also if you make that a practice, then what happens as a byproduct is you begin to build this self-concept as being someone who reflects, as being someone who is growing. And that will have that momentum effect as well as helping us when that Yitzhahara, that lower part of ourselves kicks in. Because identity is such an important buffer against that part of ourselves that wants to pull us down. Oh, who are you really? You never do this anyway. What's it gonna matter this time? 
We know this from the Torah. We see with Yosef when he is in Egypt and Eshet Potiphar, Potiphar's wife is coming to seduce him. We're told that he sees an image of his father and that enables him to stay strong in his values and to resist that. What is it to see the image of his father? It's to see where he came from and therefore who he is. There is a, an interesting study cited by Sheryl Sandberg and David Grant in their book Option B about resilience, where they talk about children who undergo an assessment called, I think it's like, where do you come from? Or something along those lines, where they're asked questions about their personal familial heritage and family history. And what's found and what intuitively makes sense to us is that the more children know about where they come from, the more resilient they are. That if we understand where we come from and therefore who we are, that that is going to serve as a buffer against the things that come up against us. So any small steps that we take, they should be steps that we are going to find success in because those successes are going to help us feel like that kind of person. They are going to build our identity and, and that identity is both in the moment, this is who I am, as well as knowing where we come from. And that is going to really serve as this container that's going to help us in this endurance. Because you're right, we don't know where we are, but we can know who we are. Beautiful. And I, I also think, you know, it makes me think for people who maybe feel like, you know, maybe their parents or both of their parents weren't always the stabilizing force that they would have wanted to do. But that does it have to be just parents or can you also have other mentors in that stabilizing role? Absolutely. We, we can look to other people as guides and as teachers. We, in our prayers, we say, right, that we speak to the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzchak, the God of Yaakov. And part of the reason that we do that is that we are reminding ourselves on a daily basis that we are part of a larger spiritual heritage. And so when we speak about where we come from, we're not just talking about family structures and family systems. And, you know, that's a whole other lecture and, and place to go. Uh, part of what we're talking about at, at its essence is our spiritual DNA. You know, a story I, I feel like I can't uh, have a conversation without bringing some wisdom from my booby. So a story that I often share about her that she told us many times. And, and I will say that over the years, I've come to understand, maybe like Rav Prada, the the importance of hearing stories more than once and that as we become more deeply acquainted with them, we can live them more. And she told us the story how she grew up in a Gera Hasidic family in Lodz, Poland. And she was raised essentially by her father. Her mother died when she was young. And how, you know, she and her sisters would sometimes want to go out. And as I've, as I've learned more about what was going on with the Enlightenment and, and, and different forces that were brewing in Europe at that time, I understand the tension that her father must have been dealing with in, in raising these young Jewish women in this increasingly expanded and different world. And she told the story how, you know, she would go out, she would be going, you know, all dressed up and there to some coffee shop or music, whatever it was, and her father would be sitting there. She would describe, you know, in the full Hasidic lavush, the, the full Hasidic getup. And he would say to her, you know, wherever you go, whatever you do, just remember 
that you're Eliyahu Bergman's daughter, you're Eliyahu Bergman's daughter. And that, that sense of where she came from really carried her through the world. And you know, part of our job right now is to remember where we came from. You know, this is a discrete time in history. This is a challenging time in history, but this is also part of a larger spiritual narrative and a larger arc that we come from, that we are connected to. Uh, you know, when, when I come to share, share ideas, when I come to connect with you, Ellie, when I, if I'm speaking in a larger place, I actually, there are a couple of things that I think about. One is something actually that you taught me, which is that I think you were advanced teacher uh, said to you, which is when before you, you go out to perform, to remember that the audience has kind eyes. Yeah, it was one of the great pieces that I've carried through everything I've done. It was a beautiful distinction. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I, I sometimes actually talk about this with clients because oftentimes we think actually the world is full of judgy eyes and scrutinizing eyes. Well, actually, those are your eyes. That's your self-judgment. The world is not always kind, but often there are kind eyes. But the other thing that I remind myself of is where I come from, that I come from a long line of Jewish women who had ratzon and had vision, and that's what we're here to do. We are here to be connected to that and to carry that forward, to be part of that larger narrative. I hope I answered the question about small steps. <laughs> we, kind of, we went around a little bit. <laughs> I think it was, look, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, what are, what, it, what constitutes a step? And I think what you're saying is in this way, really it's self growth. You have to mark, you know, where am I now? And then where can I be tomorrow? And, and make it much more um, practical and on the ground in a certain way. Yes. Um, there was a, another question that was put up. She, um, I think Sarah Jane put up a question. She said she's waiting for something from, you know, related to citizenship or ID, but really it seems the question is around, um, like how to cultivate patience, um, you know, when you're waiting for something. So what mm -hmm. are, you know, when you have this desire for something, but you know, you have to wait, what are some of the pieces that allow us to cultivate patience? Cultivate patience. So I heard two things. One is cultivating patience and how do you tolerate the discomfort? So I think part, you know, part of the question is, you know, how heavy is my mug here? It's not so heavy right now, but the more I sit here and hold it, the heavier it will be. I don't know, did you watch the torch lighting? Yes. Okay, so I don't know if I'm the only one, but I saw, you know, there were these women, they were uh, soldiers whose job it was to hold the candle that was going to be lighting that torch and they were standing there with the smile and the gloves and the hat and, and holding it very still. And I, I maybe, I, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I was watching them and thinking like, wow, her arm is so strong. She can just hold it there. And so part of the answer to the question is we build the muscle of patience by being patient. In, in Hebrew, the word for patience is savlanut, and, which is to be so well something, which is to tolerate it. Uh, one of my Musser teachers gave us the prescription, the exercise that if we want to build patience, we need to actually choose times of the day when we are on high alert, when we just 
practice what it might be to not be reactive, right? So this is not reactive, but responsive. And, and the reason that we do that is that we know anytime we want to train for something, we do it under controlled conditions. What do I mean? We don't train for the Olympics at the Olympics. We practice before. Uh, if we want clients to practice uh, relaxation exercises, we don't tell them about it and say, okay, now when you have a panic attack, go try this. We practice it in session. We have them practice it at a regular time so that when the panic attack comes, when the challenges come, ah, I know how to do this. This is part of my toolkit. Similarly with building those muscles, the more intentional we can get about tolerating that discomfort, the more we will have that skill of tolerating the discomfort. I think another piece that is helpful goes back to this concept of netzach, of endurance, and its relationship to ratzon, desire, which is that if we believe that there is a larger purpose, if we can sense that at the end of this experience, there is something, then we can tolerate a lot. And so part of our work is to cultivate visions that are not externally dependent. Okay? So not visions of, you know, if this ends in two weeks, or if this person does this thing for me, or if that thing happens in my life, then I will feel that this has been worthwhile, but rather that the payroll, the fruits, the joy in the product is intrinsically linked to the process itself, meaning, wow, I could walk out of this a really patient person. I could walk out of this the kind of person who doesn't lose it or flinch when this thing happens or that person talks to me this way or sends me that email, but I actually could be changed through this. And if we can cultivate that intense vision, then it helps us endure that discomfort. It's when we lose sight of that so when we become disconnected from that higher uh, sense of possibility that we get really easily pulled into that lower self and that, that reactivity. And, and we all do it. It's a matter of, you know, kind of that figure eight with our phone, but in a spiritual plane, coming back to that clarity again and again. Yeah, like I've been trying to remember throughout this whole thing that, you know, what are the things that I ascribe to Hashem's domain? Is it just circumstances or do I also ascribe time? Mm -hmm. Because if Hashem is in charge of time also, then whatever time this is taking is mm -hmm. also part of that um, construct. So I think, you know, I keep trying to remember like, okay, this is, I don't know what this time is, which means there's nothing I can do to change it right now. So there must be something about the timing of this that's in Hashem's hands. Cause it's like the things we can change are our business. The things we can't change, that's Hashem's business. So, you know, I keep trying to remember that time is also under the auspices often of Hashem's business. And, and so I just sort of have to figure out what to do with that time. 100%. Choose up. <laughs> Speaking of choosing up. Um, what should we choose up about this week? Hey, so, so last week we set our phone alarms. I don't know about you, but mine went off 9am thinking about it, wondering what other people's experiences were like, would love to see in the chat after or, or speak up after. Um, 
So I wanted to share share an experience that I've had this week. So um, I don't know if, if anyone can relate to this. I, I, I was noticing that I was craving poetry, okay? Uh, I was having a conversation with someone and talking about some poetry I had enjoyed when I was younger uh, in grade school. And I started to have this hankering to read poems. And I had these anthologies. I switched my major several times in undergrad, but I was an English major a couple times. And so I had these anthologies, but I, I don't have them anymore. So I asked my parents if they had any of their poetry around. And so I wanted to share with you, my, my parents, my mom found this, it's Poems to Remember. And this was actually hers from high school. And I came upon a poem by Dylan Thomas, Fern Hill. I don't know if you remember studying this in high school. I think it's one of, one of the, the regulars. And he starts off saying, now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green. Mm -hmm. And I, I was reading this poem and, and moving through it and having these layers of experiences. And on the one hand, I'm reading it in the present and enjoying it and understanding what it is as this poem is really about the experience of moving from the innocence of youth to a more mature perspective, of moving from a place of sort of everything feels beautiful and possible to, to a little bit more of, of, an, of a mature perspective and what it is to have that transition. And so I'm reading this poem and having that lens, but I'm also remembering what it was at 17 years old to learn this poem and really not get it, really not understand what that kind of nostalgia could be, but, but learning about it in theory. But I'm also reading this poem in my mother's book from high school, and I'm seeing her handwritten notes around the poem. And there's this sense of these layers of time, you know, it's interesting that you talk about time, these layers of time all meeting, all congealing in one place. And we started out at the beginning of the lockdown in Toronto, I spoke about the importance of story the importance of realizing that we are the choosers of our story. We don't have to choose what happens to us, but we choose who we become, where we direct our attention, where we direct our thoughts, how we narrate our experience. And as I read this poem, and I thought about this challenge that we have right now to, to grab onto our ruts and our desire to, to be people who can endure, I thought that these layers of time and these layers of experience really are where we are at, which is what is the commentary along the margins of your poem, of your life going to be? What is the vision going to be? And so to take some time this week to think. Years from now, when you look back upon this time, what are the notes that you want to read? Who will you want to tell yourself, your loved ones, perhaps your children, that you were at this time? And the notes are here to read it, but someone had to write them. And in our lives, we get to write them. It's not always as poetic as Dylan Thomas, but I also Googled his life and you know there was much to be desired there. What we can take away, I think, is the knowledge that this story is something that we will look back on 
that right now we're very much in the middle of it, but we will have the opportunity, God willing, to reflect on this. And so to take this opportunity to ask ourselves that question, you know, what do I want to be written in the margin? What do I want to be the commentary that surrounds this experience? And if we can clarify that, then we can get busy yearning for that, longing for that, pointing ourselves in that direction, taking those small steps, and God willing, being the kinds of people who endure and who feel that we can endure. So get out your poems, start writing in the margins, clarify your vision. Beautiful. Okay, so questions. Let's open it up for questions. If anyone has questions, you wanna, you can either use the chat or you can just unmute yourself for a moment. It's always great to hear different people's experiences and and what they're thinking about. The videos I can see everyone's kind of like thinking and percolating. <laughs> Good. Okay. So maybe what we'll do is we'll um, we'll go back just to uh, to wrap us up for the last five minutes. So we're being challenged to figure out our narrative. Anything else that we should be looking out for today, Lana, or for Shabbat or this week? Well, you know, I, maybe we'll circle back to to the question or the statement that that woman said to me in the car park. Uh, it's parking. I'm married to to a British guy, right? Now I say car park, okay? <laughs> the parking garage, the car park, uh, which was that she said she wished she could help me, but she couldn't. And sometimes we can be discouraged. We can be discouraged when we feel that we can't do as much as we wish. We're not as effective as we might hope to be. And we can get caught up in being, again, very results oriented. And I've been thinking about this, particularly when it comes even to, to prayer. What's our job? How much praying can we do? How much do we need to be thinking about what all the, all the terrible things that are happening? And, and so Maybe I'll leave us with a lesson that comes from the Torah when we look at the li life of Noah and we contrast it to the life of Abraham. So Noah is described as someone who walked with God. He is someone who gets the message directly from God that you know this mobble, this destruction is going to come upon the earth. And he is a dutiful servant. He builds his ark, he gets his family on there, and he is the one who is responsible for then being the, the string that allows humanity to continue after this model, after this destruction. And yet there are many commentaries that discuss, you know, was Noah independently wonderful and amazing and tzaddik or righteous, or was it just that in his generation compared to what was going on? And he's contrasted in, in the commentaries to Abraham. And he in some ways is charged with the flood itself. We, we talk about the flood as may Noah, the waters of Noah, but like God did it. Why, why would his name, you know, his be attached to this destruction? Wasn't he the good guy? And, and one of the explanations, and I believe therefore one of the directives for us is in the contrast between Abraham and Noah's response. When Abraham is faced with potential destruction, when God comes and says, listen, Things are, are going down in Sodom and Gomorrah and like not looking good. Going to need to destroy this. 
Abraham stands up and says, no, no, but like, what if there are 50 righteous people? Can't, can't we save, save this city? Well, no, no, what if there are 40 righteous people? What, maybe, maybe minimum 10, can we save these people? And what we know is that Abraham is not actually quote unquote successful, meaning the city is destroyed. And yet he has done something incredible. He has seen injustice or perceived injustice. He has seen suffering and he has had an empathetic kracht, as my Bobby would say, right? He has felt with them and he has prayed for them. Whereas Noah's total focus is on his teva. It's on his ark. It's on his family. And you know, he walks with God. One of, one of the commentaries says, yeah, he walked only with God. He wasn't aware of anyone else. What I think it is telling us is that we don't have to fix everything and that our prayers, we don't even understand the power of them. It is really beyond our comprehension, but that if we can just open up ourselves even just a little bit to that empathetic kracht, you know, to that part of ourselves that is awakened, then we're doing our job. We are connecting to that. And then we're not just hunkered down. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing that inward work. We need to. If we are working on ourselves, if we are living with other people in our family, that is, needs to be our primary focus. But we don't need to feel that we need to run around and do everything and save everyone to have done something. And what we see from Avraham, and, and we, we are Avraham's descendants, yet we are also descended from Noah, but, but we relate to ourselves as the descendants of Avraham. Avraham was the kind of person who didn't just hunker down, but is lauded, is celebrated for his empathetic crafts for his opening of his heart for his pleading on behalf of the people and sometimes that's all we can do you know sometimes all we need to do is to say i know other people are suffering okay i'm opening my heart to that for a moment i pray for them and that can that in and of itself can be a game changer so if we're thinking about our own vision and our own endurance then let's let's think about ourselves also as a collective and, and hoping that all of us can merit to get to the other side of this and to be able to read the story in the margins that is one that we are proud of and one that carries us forward. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to join our live Zoom each week, Go to myjfi.com slash register to sign up for our Zoom session on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would also love to hear your choosing up stories and moments. Please send us an email and let us know more at ellie at myjfi.com. To learn more about Alana Kendall, her book, and her work, go to her website, alanakendall.com. Until next week, let's find our way to choose up. <laughs>